Good evening. This morning, we looked at the book of Nehemiah, and we looked at the end of the book of Nehemiah. And I started off that lesson saying that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually originally one composition. They were one book. Um, and over time, you can see it actually happens in, in stages, uh, but over time, uh, they ended up becoming two different books uh, that we read one right after the other. But it is helpful to know that they were originally one and to read them as one because a lot of the characters overlap, a lot of the same themes overlap, and uh, there's a lot of connection between these books. Well, this morning we looked at the end of the book of Nehemiah. This evening we're going to look at a strange story at the end of the book of Ezra. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. And in Ezra 9 and 10, there's a story about a problem that Ezra has noticed. Uh, Ezra, th there are a couple of returns from uh from Babylon to uh, Judah, Jerusalem. And the first one was, is with Zerubbabel. And then you have in chapter seven, Ezra, and then you get to the book of Nehemiah and Nehemiah returns. So when you get to Ezra's return, that's in chapter seven. And in that time period, he helps to uh, restore a lot of things to the temple because uh, they have just rebuilt the temple. And so they fill up the storehouses in it. And uh, if you look at, at Nehemiah, he also reads the Torah to the people and they commit themselves to following the law of God. And, and there's a lot of things that Ezra does. When you get to chapter nine, however, Ezra notices that there's a problem. Um, if you look at chapter nine, verses one through four, we're going to be introduced to the problem and we're going to see how they go about solving that problem and then we're going to kind of look at that solution in light of, of some other biblical passages so uh, ezra chapter 9 verses 1 through 4 says now when these things had been completed the priests approached me saying the people of israel and the priests of the levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abominations those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. So the problem is all of the, the, the peoples of the lands who, if you read, for example, the book of Joshua, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They were brought out of Egypt. And what they had to do was to get rid of the land of that big long list that we just read, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, like the Canaanites, like all of those people, they were supposed to drive them out of the land. Either the people were supposed to leave because of, of warnings sent to them beforehand, or there was going to be warfare. And that's what happens in the book of Joshua. Uh, and so there's warfare, and the children of Israel are told in Deuteronomy chapter 7, do not intermarry with them, because what will happen is you'll let them stay in the land, you'll intermarry with them, and all of a sudden you'll start worshiping their gods. So the concern was never about like race or ethnicity. The concern was about uh, religion. It was about whether or not you would end up being influenced to act like these people and to worship their gods and to give up on the worship of, of Yahweh or to somehow mingle together the worship of the God of Israel with the worship of all these Canaanite gods. One of the things that Ezra is doing, and you can see this throughout the book, um, we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about it, but he is drawing a parallel between the children of Israel leaving slavery in Egypt 
and them leaving captivity in Babylon. And the children of Israel coming into the promised land and ridding it of the Ammonite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and all of them, and him coming out of Babylon and coming into the promised land and ridding the promised land of all of these uh, different uh, idolatrous peoples. And so you'll see a lot of allusions and references to this whole this whole uh, story being retold in the days of Ezra, and so it's it's kind of like a, a second Exodus. Um, it's it's a new entry into the Promised Land, and Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah are leading this new Exodus. You'll, you'll see a couple of glimpses of it as you read through the story, especially if you're looking for it. But that's one of the the main reasons why they're they're doing this is because they see it as kind of um, they need to get right. What, what was the failure the first time the children of israel came and they took the land but they always uh they never rid everybody from the land and then you can read the book of judges to see how often they ended up getting into problems with these other nations and uh, then you end up having kings like solomon who ends up marrying women of all of these nations and they turn his heart away from the lord and so they're trying to not follow in that same path so here's what happens when ezra hears that the people not only are in the land but they have intermarried with everyone. He says in verse three, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and I pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard and I sat down appalled. So he's so upset and he tears his clothes and he pulls out his beard and and head hair and he sits down, he's just appalled at what has happened. Verse four says, then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the faithlessness of the exiles gathered to me. And I sat appalled until the evening offering. And so he sits there and everyone who who feels appalled by this comes and gathers to him. But notice um, the word faithlessness in verse four, that's gonna end up being a key word that gets repeated throughout these chapters. The actions of Israel are seen as an act of faithlessness in the God of Israel. And so that's what uh, Ezra is going to try to be combating. When you get to verse five, really verses five through 15, there's a lengthy prayer that Ezra offers, and it's a fascinating prayer because it really sets the stage for understanding the mindset of the people at this point. And something that I think is, it becomes very obvious is their understanding of God is, it's going through a battle right now. There's, there's a struggle in the way that even Ezra thinks about their relationship with God. Their walk with God has been one largely of being born and raised in captivity, being allowed to go home. When they think about the God of Israel, and they think about his temple, they think about the fact that it was destroyed, they think about the fact that his people have been sent to, um, to exile, like they think about God and they think about punishment, and they think about doom, and they think about destruction. That's all they've ever really known of their God. And so they, in essence, seem to be terrified of him. Uh, And and you see that over and over again in the text. They are constantly living under the fear that God is going to abolish them, uh, going to to destroy them again, like he did to their fathers. And so over and over again, their actions are going to represent a a divine paranoia, a fear of the God who, who loves them, but they don't they don't trust that love very much, at least not at this point. That's not to say that they, they don't believe that he does love them, and they are appreciative of the fact that he's allowed them to come home, but they kind of have the mindset that, okay, but we're back home with two strikes in the count already. If we make a mistake, we're done for. Uh, they read the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy has all of these curses. 
that are pronounced upon the people if they do not remain faithful to the covenant, if they worship other gods. And their families and their parents and their forefathers have just undergone all of those curses. And now they're finally being let back out. And they are thinking, God's being gracious to us, but we better get this right because any mistake, he's sending us right back. That seems to be the mindset. And I think you can see it throughout this prayer. You can see it in, in quite a bit that happens throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. There's just a lot of fear about their relationship with God. When you get to verse 5, it says, but in the, but in the, I put the microphone in my pocket, and I just put my hand in my pocket and turned it off. Uh, verse 5 says, But in the evening offering I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees, and I stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Because of these, these mixed marriages, he's saying our sins, our iniquities, they have filled up the land. They're above our heads. They're all the way to the sky. Uh, verse 7, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. He says we are such a wretched, awful, sinful people. Uh, he, he has definite understanding of the depravity that human beings can, can find themselves in. And he says that's been us. Uh, our sins have reached the heavens. And because of that, to this day, we have been made uh, people who have been put to open shame, plundered, made captive, destroyed by the sword because of the hands of the kings all around us. Like when he looks around, he sees their own sin and just the other kings ready to pounce because that's what's happened. When you get to verses 8 and 9, I think you actually get a pretty good summary. If you're looking for a thesis statement for Ezra and Nehemiah, for this, this book that we call Ezra and Nehemiah, I think the middle of this prayer is actually a pretty good one. It's, and, and if you put these books together, uh, this is actually like a, a central prayer in the middle of the books. It's kind of a key idea that, uh, that, that Ezra is praying right here. When you get to him, you see kind of the way that he's thinking about God. Verse 8 says, But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a tent peg in the holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Just think about verse 8 for a second and notice how many of the words are like, and God is barely accepting us again. Just think of it. He says in verse 8, the first part of it, a brief moment of grace. That's such a rare attitude to have towards God in the Bible. Like normally when God is described, it's like he's overabundant with grace. It, the way the Bible ordinarily pictures God, and going back to Exodus chapter 34, this key central description of who God is, is that he is abounding in loving kindness for thousands, that he is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and that he maintains steadfast love for thousands but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He does, he does punish to the third and fourth. But even in that passage, like loving kindness, grace, and forgiveness is to the thousandth, punishment to the third and fourth. The idea is that God's punishment is slow to come and fast when it happens. 
God's loving kindness is steadfast and maintained forever. And so there's this recurring phrase throughout the Psalms, the steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. The, the, the loving kindness of God, it's, it's everlasting. And, and so there's generally this idea that God's anger is quick, but his love lasts forever. That's the opposite of what you're getting in this prayer. In this prayer, he's like, I mean, you, you verse seven, he says, from the days of our fathers, like way back then, we've been in great guilt. Our iniquities are before us. We've been destroyed by kings. We've been plundered, put to open shame to this very day. It's like punishment has been so miserably long, but we're given just this brief glimpse of God's grace. So don't ruin it. We're given a brief glimpse of God's grace. Uh, and then he says in verse eight, he continues, this brief moment of grace has been shown from the Lord to leave us an escaped remnant. It's just like, and we're just a small remnant of what there has been. They're all wiped out. And God's briefly gracious to a small remnant to give us a peg or a tent peg in the holy place. Just the smallest thing you can imagine in the temple. God's allowing us to be in there, to have this small part of it. And then he says that God may enlighten our eyes to grant us a little reviving just a little bit. And so he is looking at this like 99% punishment, 1% grace. We need to not lose our 1%. We need to take advantage of it. Now I'll say, I don't know that that's an accurate view right here. Uh, I think Ezra is definitely doing the right things in a lot of ways, trying to grow in his walk, trying to be obedient to trying to be faithful. But he does seem, because of his situation, the book seems to be portraying him as, as terrified that God's not gracious enough. And I think that will motivate some of the actions that you'll see throughout, uh, throughout this book. As they're trying to live faithfully, they don't often know what to do, and they're terrified about it. Remember, the book of Nehemiah ends with him. He's going through the land, and he sees people sinning, and sees people sinning, and sees people sinning. And he ends up you know, punching them, and cursing them, and pulling their hair, and screaming at them to stop sinning. And like that, that's how the book ends. They're just they're trying to get things right, and things are slow moving and getting right. And so when you get to verse 9, Ezra says, For we are slaves, and yet our bondage, in our bondage God has not forsaken us. Uh, by the way, continuing back with the Exodus language, he refers to them as slaves. Like that's what they were in Egypt. And he's saying we're, we're back in that situation, but even in our bondage, God has not forsaken us. Uh, he has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, Persia to give us some, there's the word some right there to kind of qualify it, some reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So that wall actually doesn't happen until the book of Nehemiah. That's one clue that these are one book originally. But notice how that's a pretty good summary of what this book is. Um, they were slaves. They're allowed to return back home. God saw them in their bondage. He leads them out of that back to home where he gives them reviving and he allows them to raise up the house of our God. That's to rebuild the temple. That's what Zerubbabel has already done and to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah. That's what Nehemiah is going to do. Uh, and so he's briefly describing the main actions throughout these books uh, and what God is graciously allowing them to do. But they need to not mess it up. God has, God has cared about them. God has been gracious to them. So don't, don't mess it up. Uh, verse 10, he says, Now, 
our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, and this is going to be kind of a summary statement. It's not a direct citation, but a summary statement of several things from the book of Deuteronomy. The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with an uncleanness of the peoples and the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. So now, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat good things in the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. So when you get to the land, there's going to be a lot of sinful, idolatrous, pagan people there. Don't go marrying with them. Don't go accepting their gods. Don't go trying to make alliances with them. Leave them away. Leave them alone, and you work on your own faithfulness. So verse 13, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the people who committed these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? He's called them an escaped remnant a couple of times. And he ends this prayer by saying, if we, make the, if we commit this sin of intermarrying, won't you abolish us as a remnant and no longer let us be an escaped people? There would be no one left who's escaped. God will completely wipe us out. And those are the questions that he's asking as he's bringing the prayer to an end. And then verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have left an escape, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and no one can stand before you because of this. And, and that's his prayer to God. It's it's a beautiful prayer. It's definitely a recognition of guilt, of confession, of the fact that God has been gracious to them, even though God didn't need to be. Uh, But there's a lot of fear in that prayer. Maybe that fear is justified. You know, you should fear the Lord. Uh, But in it, you definitely see that he is worried about the guilt and the sin of the people and what God is going to do about it. So he's pouring it all out before God in this prayer. Then, uh, verse 10, chapter 10 and verse 1, what's going to happen is someone's going to come forward to Ezra with an idea, something we can do that will help, something we can do that will get rid of, of the sin of the land. This isn't something Ezra necessarily prayed for, and this isn't something that, uh, that was told to Ezra by God or, or anything like that, but they're trying to figure out what can we do to make sure that God's not angry with us. And he gets an idea in, uh, in chapter 10. So verse 1 says, Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, uh, men, women, and children, they gathered to him in Israel, and the people wept bitterly. So they're all weeping, and they're crying, and they're begging to God, and they're confessing their sins. And then, verse 2, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, uh, of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Now yet, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all our wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord or my master, uh, that 
that is not the word Lord as in Yahweh. That's a different Hebrew word that probably he's talking about uh, like his, his human master. Uh, most English Bibles don't capitalize it, but some of them might put a footnote there that lets you know that it potentially could be about God. It's not the name Yahweh, uh, but it is a different uh, word, Adonai, which kind of depending on context, you have to see who it's talking about. Um, but then he says, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. So Shechaniah comes forward and says, I have an idea. Here's something we should do. We should do it according to the law. Let's just put away all the foreign wives and the children that people have had with them and cast them out. Like a mass divorce in, in the land to rid ourselves of the foreigners. Uh, what would they have done in the book of Joshua? Well, driven them out of the land and, and killed those who stayed to fight. Like that was, that's, what, that's what they were doing. It was a big warfare. Well, let's drive them out of the land, even if we're married to them and our children. Drive them out of the land. And let's do it according to the law. Now, that's an interesting phrase, doing it according to the law. Um, because the word law could be used a couple of different ways. You know, there's not every law was tort, like the Mosaic law. Some laws were you know, Persian law or, or uh, just legal laws that, that arise from time to time. Um, but if you're looking at the law of Moses, you don't actually see a command in the law of Moses to do this. Um, they are told in Deuteronomy 7, don't marry the foreigners in the land that you're going to go take. Like when they enter into the promised land, they're told not to marry the people there. But you're not really told what happens if they do. And so you're kind of left to think, well, once you're in this pickle, what do you do about it? And Shechaniah is thinking, well, let's just go back to square one, kick them all out of the land, and let's start this thing over. Ezra hears that, and Ezra agrees to it. And he calls all of the people to him in the next couple of verses, and he's going to uh, make a proclamation to each one of them about this fact that this is what they should do. So all the people gather, and then when you get to verse 10, it says, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. I don't know if you've noticed, but that word has popped up several times uh, throughout the section already. Uh, but you have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord your God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. With all the assembly, they all replied with one voice. That's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are some people, uh, it is, it is uh, the rainy season, but there are, sorry, there are many people. It is the rainy season, and uh, we are not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. So the people actually agree to this. Ezra says, put away your foreign wives, kick them out of the land. And the people agree, but they also say, we're standing out here listening to you, and it's raining on all of us, uh, so we're not going to stand out here for a very long time. Also, um, this isn't something we can do in you know, one or two days. This is, this, we committed a grave sin. This is going to take a while to, to do, so give us a little bit of time. And uh, so they agree to that. But something is interesting in uh, verse 15. Not everyone thinks this is a great idea. Uh, when you get to verse 15, it says, Only Jonathan, the son of Az uh, Asahel, and uh, Jehaziah, the son of 
Tikva opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supporting them. So you get this list of some of the leaders who don't agree with this idea, and a lot, a lot of them do agree with this idea. And then, verse 16, the exiles did so. Uh, so they end up going along with it. So a lot of the people seem to do this, not everyone. Uh, there's, there's mixed feelings about it, but by and large, that's what happens. And uh, they selected men who were heads of households uh, for each of the father's households, all of them by name, and they convened on the first day of the 10th month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. So they, they get basically um, some investigators to go out and figure out, okay, who all is married, who's all married to a foreigner, and they come up with this list, verses 18 through 44 is the list. These are the Israelites who have married foreign women who uh, need to be put away. Okay, and that's how it ends. It's like, it's not a, it's not a great end to a book. It just ends with this long list of, of names of, uh, of people. And then, you know, you go to the book of Nehemiah and the story continues on there. But, uh, but it's kind of a downer for, for the end of a book. And uh, you have a lot of questions left about that. So this is what they decided to do. This is the list of people. Did everybody do that? Um, they, what happened to the women and what happened to the children? You know, like, were they, were they provided for on this trip back? Uh, did, their, did the fathers, uh, like, of the households that they left when they came to marry, uh, did they accept them and welcome them back into their homes? Were they taken care of? There's, there's a lot of questions, and we're not given satisfactory answers to them. Even the question of, were they supposed to do this, or were they not supposed to do this, isn't clearly stated in the text. You don't have God saying, do this. And you don't have a law in the law of Moses saying, do this. You have Ezra who's weeping and crying because he's worried that God's going to destroy them. And Shechaniah says, I have an idea. Let's kick all the people out of here uh, or all of the foreigners out of here. And, and, and then God will be gracious to us. And Ezra says, okay, let's do that. And not everyone says, okay. Some people say, wait a minute, that's not a good idea. But they end up deciding to do it. And they take this uh, investigation to see who all's married to who. And then you're given a list of all the people who married. And that's, that's the end of the story. And so you ask, the, you, you look at that and um, you ask, okay, well, what what led to this decision? It's a really harsh decision to make. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. It impacts people's lives. So what led to them doing it? And I think there are a couple of things. Uh, one of them, I think, is good motives. Uh, I don't think they were trying to do the wrong thing if they did. You know, it's, and the text doesn't give a divine judgment on it. It doesn't say one way or the other whether God was happy with this or God was upset at them. Kind of like the end of the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah is angry and he says he cursed the people he struck the people he pulled their hair and he shouted at the people it's like they're they're doing whatever they can to get things right and they're having a hard time getting things right uh did god want nehemiah doing that is that really the the proper way to solve the problem i mean we're just told what happened and and sometimes with the bible and i think this is an important thing to know whenever you read the bible the bible doesn't always give you the answers to your questions a lot of times it gives you the questions to meditate. It gives you the questions to ponder. Sometimes, like, you know, you can, you can read through uh, the, the story of the Garden of Eden and think, well, why is there a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? 
it'd be better to not put that in there, right? Uh, and the Bible doesn't tell you why God puts it in there, but I th think you can come up with some reasons why. Uh, you know, you can, you can think about uh, God giving them choice. That's an opportunity for people to, to, to be able to choose wisdom that comes from God or choose their own, to be their own source of wisdom, their own source of good and evil. And, and, and how if you're going to love God, it's always going to require that choice. And, and so even in the garden, God was giving his creatures the freedom and, and how that's a valuable gift that God has given and how that becomes a picture of what we do in our lives daily when we have the choice between God's wisdom or choosing our own source of wisdom uh, from somewhere else. And, and you can end up through meditation on the text, having some really enlightening and, and important conversations. And a lot of the Bible is written, I think, so that communities of faith can come together and discuss and think and, and put your heads together. And I have to imagine this is one of those passages that people will talk about and think, well, is this what should have happened? Or was there another way to go about doing this? Um, but, but why did they do it? Well, I do think their motives were they wanted to please God and they saw sin and they had, were trying to come up with a way to get the sin out of the land. Uh, how do you force repentance in this situation? Well, that, that's one way to do it. Uh, and so you have people trying to do the right thing and not always knowing exactly what the right thing is. And so you have them, them choose this option. I do think it came from good motives. Um, and I think that, uh, that they didn't want to see the children of Israel drift into idolatry. They didn't want to see sin come back into the land. They didn't want to see exile return. They did not want to see God angered again. And so they're going to do whatever they can to please him. And this was what they came up with. Uh, secondly, what led to this decision, it was an interpretation of scripture. Uh, going back to like Deuteronomy chapter seven, I'll, just, I'll read it. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, there are a couple of verses that deal with the topic of marrying those within the land. Um, Verse 3 says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. And so it's like, okay, so God will destroy us if we become pagans and marrying these other people will make us pagans. So how do we, once we've already done that first part, how do we keep the second part from happening? Uh, and so what do you do? Well, you try to think about, well, what, what does repentance mean here? What do you, you know, and, and you have people putting their heads together, coming up with a way to read this scripture and to obey it. It's more than the scripture says, you know, what they end up doing, but they're trying to go to scripture for their reason. And so I think that you have uh, an interpretation of scripture that leads them to this. Um, you have the idea from Shechaniah. Uh, you know, he comes forward. That's one of the things that led to this decision. Uh, and he brings it forth. Uh, again, it doesn't necessarily say it came from God, but it is someone who is part of the community throwing out uh, what he thinks they ought to do. And sometimes when there's problems, that's one of the ways you go about solving them. You, you have an open Bible, you pray, and you talk amongst the community, and you try to figure out what the right thing to do is. And, uh, and again, th those are all reasonable things. And also, I do think that fear of God has something to do with it. Uh, a fear that maybe God's grace was running out for them. And they had to act swiftly and quickly to do the right thing, no matter what. Um, they may have let fear 
be driving the way that they responded to God. Um, you see it, again, all the way through his prayer. You see it in virtually everything that, uh, that they say, um, you know, according, like, uh, when, when Shechaniah even brings it up, there, there's, there's fear in his words. And so that seems to have a lot to do with it. And you can reasonably understand why people who have been raised in Babylon would be fearful. Uh, they don't want that to happen again. Okay, so the question uh, that I think is uh, interesting also is the thought of, was this the right thing to do? And again, uh, I think that's something to meditate upon. I think that's something to, to think about and to discuss. Uh, there isn't a divine judgment given in the, test, in the text. Uh, we're not told, and God was pleased, uh, or that, and God was angry. Uh, and so we're kind of left to think, well, they're trying to do their best. Was this the right thing? Um, it does seem, if you look through the rest of the Old Testament, that marrying a foreign woman was not always a, a bad thing to do. Um, you, you can look at the lineage, of, look, look at Matthew chapter 1. It begins with the genealogy of Jesus, and ordinarily genealogies only list males. There are several women in that genealogy, uh, including Mary, there's five, and four of them are either Gentiles or uh, were very closely related to Gentiles. You have um, uh, Tamar, who we're not told exactly, but presumably was a Canaanite. Uh, you have Rahab, who uh, was in uh, Jericho. You have uh, Ruth, who was a Moabite. You have Bathsheba, who was married to a Hittite. Uh, and so she had kind of married into a Gentile family. And then you have Mary, uh, who, who wasn't uh, Gentile. But uh, you either have Gentile or closely related. And so in that, you see that I mean, there's whole books of the Bible, like the book of Ruth, who, about a, a foreign Moabite woman who marries an Israelite man. And it's a good thing, and it's a happy story. Uh, and, and so it doesn't seem that marrying a foreigner itself was the problem. Um, I think it had to do more with the religion. Uh, it seems that Ruth said, and your God will be my God. And so she kind of adapted her religious views to that of Naomi and then that of, of the Israelites. And, and I think you can see the same thing is probably going to be true with, uh, with Rahab. She seems to fear God as well and trust in him and, and, and hide the, uh, the spies of Israel. And so she becomes loyal to, to Israel and to Israel's God. And so you do see examples of marrying foreigners uh, where there wasn't any negative consequence, but then you see examples like Solomon, who married a bunch of foreign women, and we're told very clearly that they turned his heart away from God to serve other gods. And so then he lets idolatry into the land. And so it has more to do with uh, who you worship than uh, the person that you marry, per se. Uh, and I think you could see, you know, like when Jezebel brings Baal worship, you could marry an Israelite and it would be a problem then if they're already worshiping Baal because that becomes like the, one of the key religious ideas in, in Israel. And so, uh, and so it has a lot more to do with who you worship than specifically uh, who you marry. Um, you do have an interesting passage in Malachi that might play a role here. Malachi, you know that famous uh, passage that uh, people often talk about, God hates divorce. Uh, I've heard that quoted a bunch. That comes from Malachi chapter 2. The interesting thing about Malachi is Malachi is actually a prophet right during the same time period. And he may even be talking about this situation or a very closely related situation taking place. Uh, so turn with me quickly to uh, the last book of your Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2. And we're going to look at that passage uh, just briefly. 
because um, it deals with something somewhat similar to what's going on here at a similar time and in a similar place, maybe talking about the same type of thing. Uh, but in Malachi chapter 2, verse 11, says, has, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Um, so it may be that they have married uh, daughters of foreign gods, and that's a reference to uh, marrying foreign women who worship other gods. Um, and then you, as you keep reading through this, one of the things that you see is that in doing this, they seem to have abandoned or maybe divorced their first wives, who are Israelites, in order to marry uh, these foreign women. So like, look at verse 13. It says, This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. It's like you're crying because God isn't accepting your offering, but there's a reason he's not accepting your offering. Verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. But what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. He's saying you've left the wife of your youth to marry the daughter of a foreign god. That's why God's not too thrilled with your sacrifices right now. And so uh, then you get to verse 16, and that's where my translation says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrongdoing, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you might not know this, but that's actually a highly contested translation of that verse. The Hebrew there uh, does not actually say that directly. Uh, and the interpreters, the translators, kind of have to interpret a little bit what to do with that Hebrew phrase, the one that says that I hate divorce, declares the Lord. Um, either way, I think it's true that God doesn't like divorce, and that's something that, to be avoided. But one thing that's interesting in that passage is uh, if you were to like pick up the English Standard Version, I just read it from the New American Standard, the English Standard says... For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord. Which is quite a bit different than, I hate divorce, declares the Lord. The man who does not love his wife and divorces her, declares the Lord. And you think, how do you get those two very different, one of them God is talking, and the other one, it's a man who is divorcing his wife who's speaking. Uh, and so, uh, or is being described. So how do you, you know, do that? Well, it seems that the Hebrew expression itself could literally be translated something like, but he hates sending away. And the he there is uh, not described as to, to who, who that he is. Uh, and so it could be he hates divorce, meaning God hates divorce, declares the Lord, or he hates and divorces his wife, uh, being the one who, uh, the person who does that. The, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, it's what a lot of the New Testament writers read and quoted from, um, when it quotes this passage, or when it translates it, it says, if you hate your wife and put her away, declares the Lord, you cover your ground. And so it chooses, kind of along with the English Standard Version, uh, not saying God hates divorce, but there's a person who does, hates his wife and divorces her. Um, if you look at uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate, 
it goes that same route. When you look at Martin Luther's uh, 1545 German translation, it goes that same route. And if you look at all English translations up to the King James Version, that's the route that they go. And if you look at a number of modern English versions, like the English Standard, that's the way they go. There are some, like the King James Version and those who have followed that line, who stick with the God hates divorce. But e either way you go with it, I, you're getting a negative view of divorce because people are selfishly trading their wives to marry the daughter of a foreign god. And God hates that. God does not want them to do that. God is against them doing that because God cares about justice and he cares about the person who's being neglected and put aside so you can find someone you like more. But if that's the case, then perhaps what is happening in the book of Ezra is you have these Israelite girls who have been divorced and abandoned by their husbands to marry these foreign women, and he's trying to say, no, get the foreign women out and go back to, to your wife. There's some speculation there as to whether or not this is exactly the same setup, but that might be some of what Ezra's thinking is also, is that we're trying to right a wrong that was already uh, done and already committed. Uh, but anyway, it's kind of a mess of a passage uh, is, is the point that I'm trying to make here, and we're trying to figure it out the best we can. But something that is interesting is similar situations are brought up in the New Testament a couple of times. And uh, what I want to do is close by looking at two New Testament passages that kind of deal with something similar. What do you do if you're a Christian and you're married to someone who uh, is an unbeliever? Uh, what's what's the, the course of action there? One's a worshiper of God and the other one is not. One is a follower of Jesus and the other one is not. Um, Paul actually gives the exact opposite suggestion as to what to do than Ezra does. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has to deal with this issue. And he says something interesting in it. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7 as we try to wrap up quickly. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 12 Paul's going to address, well, what about these mixed marriages of, like, of faith, uh, like you had in the book of Ezra? In verse 12, Paul says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. And that's always an interesting phrase. He starts off by saying, I'm about to tell you something, not Jesus. Uh, I don't think what he's saying is, I don't care what Jesus says about this, I'm going to tell you this. Uh, I don't think he's throwing off the teaching of Jesus. I think he's simply stating that when Jesus was teaching he was teaching to Jews, and it was understood that everyone he was talking to was already part of the covenant family of God. So he wasn't talking to like one person who's a Jew and one person who isn't, or one person who's a worshiper of Yahweh and another one who isn't. When he was questioned by the Pharisees, he was talking to Pharisees. And so he'd never even dealt with the question of what happens when you have a believer married to a non-believer. That wasn't one of the questions that he was asked. Uh, and so they asked him very, very explicitly a question about the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. They did not ask him this question. But Paul is going out into like Gentile lands and he's teaching the gospel there. And there's going to be a bunch of scenarios where one person's still worshiping the gods of Corinth and the other person becomes a Christian. And you think, okay, so what do you do here? Do you pull an Ezra? Uh, you know, is that, is that the thing to do? And what Paul says is, no, don't do that. I'll tell you what, what I believe the best thing to do in this situation is. Uh, verse 12 he says, uh, but, I, uh, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband um, or must, send her hus must not send her husband away. Then verse 14 is like a mind-blowing passage that the, the interpretation is also difficult of. But he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife 
and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. That's the exact opposite of what Ezra was saying when he was looking at these situations. Uh, and it's also the opposite of what was generally believed about clean and unclean. Like, if you're clean and you touch a dead body, which is unclean, you don't pass cleanness onto that dead body. The uncleanness transfers to you. That, that's a key idea about clean and unclean. Throughout Leviticus and throughout Haggai, there's, a, there's an illustration about it. But Jesus does something interesting. When Jesus touches the leper, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes cleansed. When Jesus touches the dead body, he doesn't get unclean. The dead body is enlivened and comes back to life. Uh, when Jesus uh, is touched by the woman with the flow of blood, that's another thing Leviticus says makes you unclean. She walked away clean. Jesus didn't become unclean. Jesus reversed the, the, the course of cleanliness. And Paul is saying that's what's happening in these marriages. The marriage isn't defiled because there's an unbeliever and a believer coming together. Rather, the marriage is actually sanctified by that. Now, I don't think what he's saying is, therefore, the person you're married to, they can be, you know, they can not believe in God and dislike Jesus and they're still going to heaven. I don't think that's his point. But I think what he's saying is, but God has sanctified and set apart your marriage and your relationship and that other person because of your faith. So don't discard that other person. You're okay. Uh, whereas Ezra saw it as the whole marriage is polluted because of the unbeliever. Paul says because of the believer, the marriage is sanctified. And then Paul goes on to say, uh, verse 15 and 16, yet if the unbelieving one does leave, like if they say, look, you're crazy for following a crucified Messiah, I'm out of here. And they leave, let them leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. So he said, don't divorce them, but if they leave you, you haven't sinned. You're not under bondage here. Uh, that was them leaving. It's not ideal, but there's nothing you could do about that. Then verse 16, he says something interesting as he kind of draws this question to a close. He says, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Um, stay in the marriage because you may have a Ruth situation on your hands where they end up becoming a follower of God. Stay in the marriage. And, and Ezra doesn't discuss that possibility. He doesn't discuss maybe we can teach them about Yahweh. and maybe, maybe we can make an impact that way. That, that, that's never brought to the table there, but that seems to be Paul's primary concern is maybe you can have an influence on them. Uh, and also that seems to be Peter's concern because a similar question is brought up in 1 Peter chapter 3 where a wife is married to an unbeliever and what she's he, the, the wife is told is like, behave in such a way that your husband will see the goodness of Christ in you and think, you know, even without hearing a word of evangelism, he can be won by your behavior as he observes it. Uh, live in such a way that you make the gospel live, look good if you're in a marriage like this, and maybe your spouse will be won over by your behavior. And so Peter also doesn't say divorce. Uh, like Ezra, he says, no, see if you can make a, a, an influence. And so um, the Ezra passage is, it's kind of a strange one. Uh, it's the only time you see that really happen in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and there's a lot of different ideas about whether or not that was what he should have done or whether or not that was what he should not, you know, should not have done. Um, you do see that they're trying to keep the people pure. They're trying to keep sin out of Israel. They don't have bad motives. They're trying to be faithful to God. They're kind of afraid of God, and they think maybe that's their best 
option right there. And we're not told that it is. But for Christians, what we think is, I'm going to be the best influence I can be in this situation. God will sanctify this marriage through this union. And maybe we can win another soul rather than just add another divorce. Uh, maybe we can win someone to Christ rather than sever somebody from us. And, and so as Christians, we approach it from a different perspective, which again is going to make reading Ezra 10 kind of hard to stomach for us because we're going to be approaching it in a very different way in light of Christ. Um, but it's an interesting study, I think. I hope that you will study and think about it and pray about it as well um, and, and come up with some of your own thoughts and opinions. I think you're, you're free to do so. Try, try your best. Uh, but, uh, but again, I think that's one of the reasons our questions aren't answered, so that we will do that, so that we'll dive into it and put some of our best thoughts into it. Uh, if there's anyone here tonight who... Uh, you look at your life and it's not what you would like it to be with respect to your relationship with God and you'd like the help and the prayers of the church, we'd love to help you in any way that we can. And if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian tonight, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.